That's odd. Is that more better? This morning, uh, I'm not quite as ambitious as Jeff was when he was up here. He taught an entire epistle, but it had five chapters. I'm going to go through an entire epistle, but it only has one chapter. And it's, yeah. Man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> and to just change the mood a little bit, uh, I don't normally start off with something, but we started off with a rather somber, somber note. So do you all know the difference between Dubai and Abu Dhabi? The difference is the Flintstones. You see, Dubai doesn't like them, but Abu Dhabi do. <laughs> okay, now on that note, Second John. Uh, this is the second of three epistles that uh, we believe John wrote. There's no indication that anyone wrote these other than the Apostle John. And uh, the date is unknown, but we do know that John at this time was an old man because it starts off with the elder. And we know that John was the youngest of all of the 12. So we're assuming that the date that this was written was sometime around 90 to 95 AD. And it was written most likely during his ministry in Ephesus. Second and third John, as we've mentioned, are the shortest of all the New Testament books, each of them having less than 300 words. That's sort of a man-sized book. Uh, and interestingly enough, the letters of the day, the Greco-Roman letters of that day, generally were about two to 300 words. So he was in keeping with those letters. Uh, this epistle deals with the same thing that First John did. It was an ongoing problem, and basically they were dealing with false prophets. In particular, in his day, the Gnostics, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them later. Now, all of that, to me, is interesting stuff, but it's stuff. What does the Bible say? Uh, a couple of weeks ago in the men's Bible study, we were talking about the use of what does that mean? And in the English language, when we ask that question, what does it mean, we're asking, how does that translate? What is the definition of it? But then, if it changes a little bit to what does that mean to you, what we're not asking for is a private interpretation of the word. The word has one meaning. God is the author of it. He intended it to have a single interpretation not various interpretations, and not what does it mean to you. What is your individual revelation of what God has said? God is very clear. We make it complicated in many cases because we don't want to understand what his word has said to us. So as we look at this, it's a short epistle. I'm going to read the entire thing, and then we'll break it down a little bit. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth which remains in us will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we have received a command to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one which I have 
had from the beginning and we that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you are to walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves and do not lose what you, we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come and speak to you face to face so that your joy may be made complete. The children of the chosen sister greet you. So John starts us off the elder. And again, we assume that it's John that wrote this. And at this time, he was an old man. And he had had considerable authority in the church for a number of years. Tradition holds it that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Mother, this is your son. John, this is your mother. That from that point forward, John understood that it was his responsibility as a believer to take care of Jesus' mom. You don't hear a lot about John uh, in, in the New Testament. You don't hear a lot about many of the apostles in the New Testament, but we think that he took that, uh, tradition holds it, that he took that responsibility very seriously. He also had a strong ministry in Ephesus and uh, particularly strong in Asia Minor, which we would call today basically Turkey. And he was a personal eyewitness to Jesus's entire ministry from the baptism of John until the ascension, which is critical. No one can deny an eyewitness. Strongest form of testimony there is. Then he says to the chosen lady, we don't have any clue who this chosen lady was. I happen to believe in a literal translation of the Bible, and I believe that he was writing this to a particular lady. Uh, some would argue that this was written to the church in general because the church is often referred to as a lady. And that will only vary what we say by just a little bit as we look at it. But I happen to believe it is a particular lady that he wrote it to. And, and as evidence of that, if we look at 3 John, there's a precedent there because he sent that letter to Gaius. So he is known to write letters to individuals. Uh, again, a literal interpretation of it. Uh, it could go either way, and it doesn't form any sort of heresy if you were to believe that it is the church. He also says, and to her children. So if you believe, as I do, that it was written to a particular lady, this is written to her particular children, her offspring. Uh, and he goes on, whom I love in truth. Do y'all remember what John was called as the disciple? Which disciple was he? The, the lover. Yeah, the one Jesus loved, John the lover. 
uh, so who he loved in truth. This word is used five times. Love is used five times in the first four verses. So it must be kind of important, you think? And what is truth? It's reality as opposed to mere appearance. What does the Bible say about truth? In Deuteronomy 32 and 4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. Meaning that God is truth and he is the source of truth. Jesus himself said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. Not a truth, not one of the truths, the truth. John 1 and 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John 14 and 7. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides in you and you will be and will be in you. And then the Bible says that scripture is truth. Daniel 10 and 21. However, I tell you what is inspired in the writing of truth. I was reading Dr. MacArthur and he said, we are saved by the truth. We are sanctified by the truth. We love the truth. We are judged by the truth. We are set free by the truth. We worship in the truth. We serve God in the truth. We rejoice in the truth. We speak truth. We think on the truth. We desire the truth. We manifest the truth. We hear the truth. We obey the truth. Most comprehensively, we walk in the truth. We worship in the truth. We serve God. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, that is to say, we conduct our lives in the realm of truth. It determines how we think and how we speak and how we act. We walk in the truth. He's setting all of this up because he's addressing false teachers. How are you going to know what's false? if you don't know what the truth is. We are to be people of the truth. It's clearly written to believers in 1 Timothy 3 and 15. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. 
we have a stewardship with the scripture. We are to support the truth, stand by the scripture. We're to know it, we're to stand by it. And if we abandon the truth, then the church is no longer the church of Jesus Christ because he is the truth. Uh, we live in a day, and I don't know how many of you have heard this, but we live in a day when people say, well, that's your truth. Again, there is no private interpretation of the truth. Either it is or it isn't. It's true or it's a lie. There is no private interpretation. And when people tell us that, you know, we need to let them understand that truth is not subjective. Truth is truth. It is what it is. Uh, if it wasn't, then what have we got to stand on? Uh, and how do we get the truth? Through the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. The truth is clearly important. Uh, love is mentioned twice in this context. He loves them in truth. There is a famous counselor of the 20th century, Alfred Adler, and he was once noted as saying, the truth is often a terrible weapon of aggression. It is possible to lie and even to murder with the truth. So do you see that sometimes people feel there is a tension between the truth and love? What a poor misguided fellow that was. The Bible clearly tells us we are to share the truth in love. And if we don't share the truth, what else don't we do? We don't love. Uh, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. And those whom we love, we will share the truth with. John says, whom I love in truth. If we love people in truth, we love our brothers. And have you ever noticed that sometimes you just absolutely have an attraction to someone and you can't explain it other than you find out just a little bit later that it's the spirit within them that is attracting the spirit? Uh, I've got a dear friend that has, I've probably seen maybe five times in the last 40 years. And before I ever met him, he and I were brothers because we had a conversation. We found that we were both believers and the spirit united us. Isn't it amazing that that happens? I am closer to many of my Christian brothers and sisters than I am to my blood family because we share the truth. In verse 3, John is stating that God the Father and Jesus Christ are equally God. He did that by joining God the Father and God the Son, emphasized it by saying, the Son of the Father. 1 John 2, 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. 
many false teachers would argue that because Jesus is the Son of God, that it's the same as us being sons and daughters of God. What they're doing is saying he is of God, but he is not God. There is a huge difference there, y'all. I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, if, if he is not God, what is he? Created man, but he's a liar because he said he was God. And we can't worship a liar in truth because the truth is not in him. Years ago, a whole bunch of years ago, Daniel Webster was once in a meeting with a whole bunch of universalists, and universalists happened to believe that all paths lead to God. And as the conversation went on that night, someone asked him, Mr. Webster, do you really believe that Jesus was both fully God and fully man? And he said, I believe that with every fiber of my being. And then the fellow asked him, well, can you fully comprehend how he can be both God and man? And Mr. Webster, without missing a beat, said, absolutely not. If I could, I would be his equal, and I do not need a God who I am his equal. I need a superhuman God. Y'all, we need a superhuman God. We don't need a God of our own creating. As we move on in verse 4, he tells us some of her children are walking in the truth. Having an authentic faith, it implies a continual walk and making obedience to the truth a habit of their daily lives. As we go on in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see that John, bless you, is taking them back to the basics of faith. Do y'all remember when you were either playing sports or have coached sports? That when, and I remember this better when I was playing, when you had a particularly bad game, what happened the next time you were with the coach? After you got yelled at, you went back to the basics. And for most of us in the room, they could yell pretty good back in the day. Uh, call you names, they could, they could even wear you out a little bit. But uh, John here is taking them back to the basics. If we look at it, walking in the truth. You've just received the commandments. We stay in the word. We read it. We study it. We meditate on it. We sit under good teaching and we share it. Y'all, we live in an age of biblical illiteracy. People don't read the Bible, but they can quote you all the stuff that's in the Bible, like cleanliness is next to godliness, and God helps those who help themselves, which is great, but it's just not in the Bible. So let's not quote the truth that, that ain't the truth. Number two, he says, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one which I have had, which we have had from the beginning, that you love one another. Not live selfishly, not live self-centered lives. This is not new to John. If you look back in John 13 and 35, by this all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's no visitors in this room right now, but think about the visitors that enter the doors. What is one of the things they see in this body? Our love for each other. They don't see the differences. That takes them a little while to figure out that we're all weird, but they see that we love one another. And that is love that we walk according to his commandments. We are to be obedient. We've heard it. Now we walk it. It's not God's suggestions. It's his commandments. And if he is sovereign, he gets to tell us what to do. Now, if you'll note, as we get to verse 7, there's a bit of a change in his tone. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. You know, he's starting off talking about how much he loves people, and then he goes to many deceivers have gone out into the world. And he goes on. Those that do not acknowledge... Is the sky falling? Um, those that do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, it's a good time to let's talk a little bit about the Gnostics, which he was dealing with primarily there. The Gnostics, that was a prevalent uh, false teacher at the time, and they believed that uh, Jesus was not fully God, not fully man all at once. Uh, the, as we discussed earlier, the litmus test for true Christianity is whether or not Jesus himself is God. They believed, and it's kind of an odd thing, but the Gnostics believed that at the baptism, the Spirit came down and indwelled a man called Jesus, and then at the or at or before the crucifixion, the Spirit left. So he was born fully man, not God, lived part of his life God and man, and then died man. It's often said, and I find it true, that many of these false beliefs require a whole lot more faith than what is required for us to believe the truth of the gospel. Uh, the false teachers were counterfeit Christians back then, not people that would come to your door and say, hey, I've got a heresy I want to talk to you about. Not people that say, hey, I want to blaspheme Jesus for a little bit here. It, were people, it was people that were masquerading themselves to be Christians. Uh, and kind of, that's, that's the way it happens now. But let's look at Jesus in what we call the high priestly prayer. John 17, 15 through 21. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, not just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Also, you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent them. He's warning them about these false teachers and these deceivers, these antichrists. Satan has always been a copier. He didn't have anything original. If we look at what Jesus did, he sent people out. If you'll remember, he sent them out first with nothing. Then he sent them out again. So doesn't it stand to reason that Satan would do the same thing? He sent out his people to deceive, to destroy, to take away people's faith. It'd be a whole lot easier if these false teachers, even in our day, would wear a t-shirt that had Antichrist on it, or you know, if the devil actually ran around with horns and a pitchfork and a forkety tail, but they don't. So how is it that we're to know? Well, it's told that the people who are in charge of the currency to make sure that there is no counterfeit currency don't study counterfeit currency. They only study the real deal. They become so well-versed in it and so familiar with it that they can take a piece of counterfeit currency and feel it or look at it and tell us not the truth. Y'all, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to taste and feel Jesus so that when something comes along to distract us from that, to deceive us from that, we're going to say, no, it ain't the truth. You know, it, it, just as a, a silly example, we, we'll go out to eat sometimes. And uh, do y'all ever go to the meet and three places? We, we like the meet and three, the little country diners. And I will ask them, do they make their cornbread with or without sugar? That's a test because if it's got sugar in it, it ain't cornbread. It's cake. I know the difference. I've had real cornbread. Uh, and I don't mean to offend any of you that put sugar in your cornbread, but you're wrong. Um, <laughs> as we look back at what John said in 1 John 2, 21 through 24, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that, you heard, see that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you will remain in the Father and in the Son. The Bible is clear in stating that the only way to the Father is through the Son. 1 Timothy 2 and 3 through 6. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator. 
also between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. In John 4, 1 John 4 and 23, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. These deceivers deny that Jesus was the Christ, and in truth, they aren't able to sing and believe many of the songs that we do. I was thinking about some of the old hymns, and, and one that I know that they would have a problem with is by Graham Kendrick, Meekness and Majesty, in just a couple of verses here. Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Y'all, that's the Jesus that we know. And, you know, if you think about it, most of us in the room have been married for quite a while. What are the chances that someone could come in and deceive us about being our spouse? Not a way in the world. And yet, we have one closer to us than our spouse. We can't allow someone to come in and deceive us. Uh, we don't want to get off on any um, rabbit trails, as I am often prone to, but uh, think about in the garden when that serpent was deceiving Adam's wife, his bride. Yeah, we don't let people deceive those we love. We don't let them deceive us. We don't give it a toehold. Uh, what said, what, what was said, what they were saying was that Jesus was a mere man. The, and you know, it's, it's interesting. The Gnostics still exist today. They're, uh, they're showing up in different forms, but you know, it's not, not just the Gnostics that we're dealing with. Think about Mormonism. Mormons believe that Jesus was a great man and a good teacher, but not God. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Trinity. Islam believes that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. You know, these differences may seem subtle to those that don't know the truth, but to us, it's defining. It needs to be. And at the moment we see that, we need to bristle up. We can, we can argue or discuss all sorts of things. We can have a friendly discussion about, you know, all sorts of things that the Bible is not clear on. And we should. We need to be thinking on these things. But we need to bristle up and be ready for a fight when someone tells us or tells someone we love and are responsible for looking over that Jesus is not God, that he was merely a man, or he was some good teacher, or he was something other than God himself. 
But you know, it's not, not just the cults. I looked up a Pew Research study, and uh, it was about what evangelicals believe. So I looked up what an evangelical is, and it means, according to Oxford Dictionary, of or according to the teaching of the gospel or Christian religion. In 2014, 25.4% of the population called themselves evangelical. In 2022, 43% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a good man or a great teacher, but not God. That's 43%. 56% agree that other religions are acceptable ways to get to God. So, you know, it's not just what you would typically characterize as the false cults, the ones that are easy to see, but people that call them, well, in today's vernacular, those that identify as evangelicals are saying these heretical things. John, in verse 7, said, calls them not just deceivers, and he says there are many, but he calls them antichrists, and so they are. If you look up antichrist against, they're not just the opposite of Christ, they're against Christ. We can't allow that. Andy's been speaking lately in Romans chapter 1. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not accept the love of the truth as to, so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. We know that these deceive, what these deceivers do. Let's just review for a minute what he said in John, 1 John 3 and 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded. The one who keeps his commandment remains in him, and he in him. We know that he remains in us by the spirit who has given us, by the spirit he has given us. And John reiterates that in Second John 8 and 9. Watch for yourselves, and do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God, and the one who remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. As we get to verse 9, we see that uh, if we stick, excuse me, we get to verse, we are told to stick truthfully with what the Bible, my tongue quit working on me. We are told to stick strictly 
with what the Bible teaches. I'll get through this. I'm sorry. Uh, we should not go too far with what Scripture says. I, uh, I saw a teaching, and I, I believe it was Alistair Begg, and he, he mentioned that uh, he had a guy come in and was speaking to pastors. And he considered himself a bit of an artist. And this is dated because he was using a chalkboard. But he got up, took a piece of chalk, drew a line straight across the board. And that was his drawing. And he said, for you pastors, and I will extend it to all of us, pastors or just believers, that line is what we walk. We don't add to scripture. We don't take away from it. We walk strictly on the line of what scripture says. It goes back to private interpretation. The Bible is easy to understand, harder to follow, but easy to understand. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. It's saying here, don't invite them in your home. And here, depending on what you believe, if it was a single lady he wrote to, don't invite them into your personal residence. If he's writing to the church, don't invite them into the church house. Don't invite them in if you know that they're going to be speaking heretically. Can you imagine an instance where John David would say it's okay for Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland to come in and preach from the pulpit? No, you're not going to do that. So can we imagine an instance where we're going to invite someone into our home that is going to deny the deity of Christ? This is hard. It appears that we're not loving people if we do that, but why are we going to allow deceit into our home? Now, did I just tell y'all that if you have unbelieving family, you're to break it off with them. No, I did not say that. Did I just say that if you run into people in the course of your daily affairs that don't believe that Jesus is God, that you're to break it off with them and not engage them? No, you're not. You're to engage them. You're to share the truth with them. But do you let them into your home where they could have influence on people that you love? I think the Bible is clear here. No, you don't. But what, 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 I didn't write it. I'm sorry. I don't think you do that. Uh, we are to engage culture. But we're to engage culture in a wise way and not to allow any heresy into our homes and certainly not into our hearts. If we look at some of the stuff that the people back then would have deal, been dealing with. Think about first century Middle East. What was one of their primary things by which they showed who they were? Hospitality, right? Let's look at Romans 12. I'm running out of time, that's not good. Uh, Romans 12, nine through 13. Love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, 
persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. We are to practice hospitality. In 1 Peter, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. But let me ask you all a question. What percentage of your food or, or your children's food do you want to be poison? And, and to just hammer it home, I was looking and uh, looked up what the FDA allows. And forgive me, this is going to get a little bit graphic, but in one quarter of a cup of cornmeal, the FDA allows one or more whole insects in a quarter of a cup, two or more rodent hairs, and 50 or more insect fragments and then some other stuff that we just won't talk about in a quarter of a cup. How much deception, how much heresy is safe to have into our lives? None. Um, we're going to have to land the plane here, um, as did my friend Jeff before me. I have got way more material than what, uh, what I've got time. Uh, you know, he, he talks about the truth. He talks about the Antichrist. He talks about deceit. But he tells us to stick with the basics. Stay in the word. Love one another. And obey the commandments. And he ends, and, and you know, just, just to make sure that we're, we're clear, I'm not telling anybody, don't have conversations, don't have meaningful conversations, don't love those that don't believe. But, you know, our Jewish friends don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. We do. Both can't be true. The Mormons believe that Jesus was created, and we believe that Jesus is creator and co-equal with the father both can't be true and the hindus believe that god has incarnated himself many many times we believe that it was one unique unrepeatable event both can't be true and islam says that a person can go to heaven based on the scales and you know even in their symbols. You've got a set of scales, and if you do more good than bad, you go to heaven. But we believe you can't do enough good, only Jesus could. Both can't be true. Let's remain people of the truth and share that truth with a world that desperately needs it. With that, thank y'all. <laughs>